Hello, hello, Pistown Pals, broadcasting from the Barefoot is Legal studio in Washington, D.C. This is District Sentinel Radio Live. I'm one of the hosts, Sam Sachs. I'm the other, Sam Knight. It's good to be back with you live. You know, it's not technically the Barefoot is Legal studio. I screwed up at the beginning. It's just the Sentinel Fort. Our sponsorship has expired, which means... You can name the studio next if you want. Patreon.com slash District Sentinel. And was it 200 bucks a month you can name the studio? Yeah, we will uh, consider discounts <laughs> for, uh, um, for people who, uh, I don't know, want to uh pay us some money we're not well we won't give it away for free we won't do like uh like pay what you can we'll negotiate well we will negotiate Yeah, we're open to negotiations if you have a really good name for the studio if you have a really good name for the studio or if you're like you know 200 is a bit much but i can do 135 (laughs) we'll take 135 What's going on? Uh, what's coming up on the show today? On uh, today's show, we have rapid developments on the Klobuchar compromise front. <laughs> we take a good look at the envelope shortly. Plus, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was the target of a vicious smear campaign for a joke about the well-documented influence of the Israel lobby in Washington. Alex B. Kane covers Israel, Palestine, and civil liberties. And he joined us to talk about this week's dog pile from conservatives... And liberals. Thanks, liberals. Yes. On a related topic, we will be dragging out the garbage can later in the show. A lot of nominees uh, this week are from the whole Ilan Omar smear campaign. So we'll be uh, addressing them in the can. Also, we're going to read some emails that we get from uh, ship merchants here in Washington, D.C. We've got some haiku coming up later in the show. A lot of good stuff. And we've got the chat room going on. We'll be chatting with all of you uh, as we go on. But I guess the the top news... Is that 69 might be canceled. Oh, geez. The top story is the president aware of the sex number meme. We had a tweet from President Trump today uh, that said, the Gallup poll just announced that 69% of our great citizens expect their finances to improve next year. A 16-year high. Nice. Nice. Now, there was uh, immediately just a wave of reaction to this, obviously. Uh, What's your theory here? Was this this intentional? Some people thought this might have been intentional, pandering to uh, internet jokesters. Some people thought that it might have been a White House staffer who... uh, wrote this tweet for Trump as if anyone but Trump would write Trump's tweets. But I did a little research. I I did the sleuthing. uh, I'm not saying that there is going to be a spotlight-like movie about this one day, but I searched for Trump's tweets uh, for nice and an exclamation point, and it turns out this is a common Trump sentence construction whereby he says something he likes and then finishes it with a one word punctuation nice for example this from the uh, 2016 campaign well now they're saying that i not only won the nbc presidential (laughs) forum but last night the big debate nice 
also this. So disgraceful that the, this is while he was president. So disgraceful that the questions concerning the Russia witch hunt were leaked to the media. No questions on collusion. Oh, I see. You have a made up phony crime collusion that never existed and an investigation begun with illegally leaked classified information. Nice. Again, no 69 here. Moving on to another tweet, again about the Russia stuff. They made up a phony collusion with the Russia story, found zero proof, so now they go for obstruction of justice on the phony story. Nice. (laughs) Again, no sex number. Moving on to the next one. The U.S. has an increased economic value of more than $7 trillion since the election. May be the best economy in the history of our country. Record jobs numbers. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Seven trillion was the number, not sixty-nine, not four twenty, not even eighty-one. No irony numbers whatsoever. <laughs> there are also variations on the theme. Uh, for example, also during the campaign, Trump said, "Wow, Jeb Bush, whose campaign is a total disaster, had to bring in mommy to take a slap at me. Not nice." And then this also related after right after Trump won. Jeb Bush, George W., and George H.W. all called to express their best wishes on the win. Very nice. Hmm. So you see, the nice has nothing to do with numerology. Yeah, you've made a pretty convincing argument that this was just random. He tweets enough. He uses the word, he ends his tweets enough with nice. So it's a matter, it was just a matter of time before they all came together. The yeah. nice tweet, along with the 69 number, he loves referencing polls and poll numbers and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So it was, it was bound to happen at some point. Yeah. Uh, I, we, we do have an extremely online president. I don't think he's that <clears throat> online, though. No, he's not. He's not that online, and he's certainly, he's certainly not that savvy. This was, this was a coincidence, I think. All right, we can uh, close the case on that. We'll wait for uh, the report from Swin from the Daily Beast on whether or not... (laughs) 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 Not taking a dig at Swin, because obviously we put a lot of thought into this ourselves. Yeah, we did. (laughs) Uh, Moving on, there is more news on the Klobuchar Kompromat front. Mm. Yahoo reported yesterday. The news is moving ahead of us fast on this Moving very issue, rapidly, very rapidly. But we're, we're coming to a, a head, sort of, tonight, as you will soon see. Uh, Yahoo reported yesterday that the senator is so vindictive toward her employees that she will literally call the managers of staffers who leave to <laughs> disparage them to their new bosses. Reading from the report, quote, Speaking out could lead to retribution from Klobuchar should she be able to identify them. She has been known to grow irate at staffers who find work elsewhere, calling their new employers to have the offers rescinded. Wow. So I'm just going to come out and say it. I heard one rumor about this that involves a former Obama administration fucking cabinet secretary and uh, Klobuchar's plea went ignored by this individual to fire the staffer. But... Perhaps this does give some insight into why everyone who has worked for Klobuchar has spoken to reporters anonymously about this issue, and perhaps why reporters haven't been able to confirm some of the more grotesque anecdotes on the record, because it would be obvious who talked, and Klobuchar is very vindictive. More on this soon. So as was the case with the BuzzFeed report, ex, uh, excuse me, ex-staffers interviewed by Yahoo totally rejected the notion that 
that sexism is driving coverage of how Klobuchar is a terrible fucking boss, uh, despite what the most vapid people on social media are saying. And uh, if it's any indication, Amy Siskind, aka who got mad at me once for calling her Amy Piskind, yeah, she tried to get you fired. Tried to from get me Sentinel. fired by tweeting at the Sentinel account. <laughs> Which you now control. <laughs> Full time. I, then I was only controlling it 95% of the time. Uh, anyway, Amy Siskin said that the Klobuchar stuff uh, was sexist. And Amy Siskin voted for John McCain because Sarah Palin was a woman. And that's it. That's the only reason she voted. So anyway, that's just to give you an idea. Amy Siskin is Team Klobuchar. And... Uh, just among the most vapid people online. So three women who used to work for Klobuchar told Yahoo, quote, while sexism remains a dismayingly potent force on Capitol Hill, it does not inform their own assessment of Klobuchar. Each of them separately said that the senator's behavior was plainly abusive and went far beyond that of other senators known to be demanding and difficult. She can't hire top-tier staff, one former staffer says. It's real. <laughs> So hours, just hours, literally fucking hours, maybe even less than hours after this report came out, Slate came out with yet another piece on Klobuchar. Now, this is, uh, whew. so David Mandel, the uh, a showrunner for the satire Veep, said that one of the show's more notorious gags was based on a Klobuchar rumor that the senator once had a staffer shave her legs. Oh, so I am reading from Slate. It's a well-known rumor that we were told a million times by millions of people, Mandel said of the leg shaving story. When asked for comment, a representative for Klobuchar said the rumor was completely false and added, this is ridiculous. Well, looks like we can take care of something right now. Get it out. The uh, Klobuchar compromise. On, we maybe were jumping the gun. Her campaign has not imploded. Uh... <laughs> And given the Democratic Party and the way these primaries sort of shake out, maybe she'll win the primary based on this stuff, the way uh, her supporters are rallying around her. But in our book, the campaign is imploding. These news reports are too much. So we're going to open up the Klobuchar Compromat envelope. Sam Knight, sh show the camera what uh, you have written inside the envelope. Oh God! It's it's it was sealed really well. I remember I sealed yeah. it well because I wanted to make sure that whoever watched our story, our our show, uh, what was it, four weeks ago, uh, wanted to. You know, we thought this might not. It's all happening so fast. Hang on, uh, for people only listening to the audio, not watching. I'm clearly struggling with this. Ah, okay. Here it is. Klobuchar forced Stafford to shave legs. <laughs> <laughs> There it is. There it is. There it is. There it's already was, out. It's already out. The I mean, story, there was well, question on whether or not it was Klobuchar forcing her own staffer to shave their own legs or whether it was Klobuchar forcing a staffer to shave her own legs. Both are bad. One is considerably worse than the other. Very much worse. And based on the latest reporting, it suggests it's the latter, the significantly worse one. Yeah, uh, we should stress again that obviously uh, a representative for Klobuchar denied this and <laughs> said it's ridiculous. But again, remember, a story like 30 minutes before that came out and said that she fucking calls people's managers and tries to get them fired. And the leg shaving story is a an anecdote that 
they could probably identify who the person was who shaved legs, unless it's more than one. (laughs) (laughs) That would be something. So anyway, I felt like I should open this now. We should open this now because, yeah, it's true. It hasn't officially collapsed yet, but uh, at least the story uh, has moved from the whispers of Washington section uh, to the Prince section. So... I felt like yeah. it was time to open this. Let me just say, I've heard worse. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually have heard worse. We might need to create another Klobuchar compromise envelope in case more comes out. But uh, but if this is true, like she should be forced to resign. This is really bad harassment. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's some of the worst I've ever heard. But uh, she was uh, asked about being a hard boss when she was interviewed on the Rachel Maddow show. Maddow asked her one question about it. She denied it. She says, look, I, I, I have high expectations of, of my staff. And then rather fall, than following up and asking about these specific allegations and how she responds to them, Maddow just goes to, you know, this is the first time you've had to deal with bad press. What is that like? <laughs> She's only had to deal with bad press now because she surrounds herself with sycophants like Rachel fucking Maddow. Who wants Amy Klobuchar to uh, to connect yarn on her on her uh, on her Charlie from Always Sunny Russia conspiracy map? Yeah, oh, that was such an online reference. I'm so sorry to people who actually like read books and stuff <laughs> who listen to this show. Anyway, uh, should anyway. we uh, now that we've uh, gotten to the bottom of Trump's 69 tweet and open the Klobuchar compromise envelope? Should we uh, get to some of the some of some of the actual some of the actual, actual news, news of the day here? Uh, yeah, let let let's do that. So uh, today, the House passed a resolution that would end U.S. involvement in the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Some very good news, pretty historical. Uh, every Democrat and 18 Republicans supported the legislation, which now goes to the Senate, which passed the same resolution last year. So now all eyes are on Mitch McConnell. Because Senate passage this time would show it, it would set up a showdown with Trump. So I personally am willing to wager all the chocolate in Switzerland that Mitch McConnell tries to kill this resolution for the White House, the Saudi lobby, and the oil lobby, or that he ties it to some disgusting language stating the U.S. will never withdraw its troops from Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, or maybe some resolution of approval for the U.S. coup efforts in Venezuela. Or maybe some awful condemnation of Ilhan Omar. Yeah. Who knows? Either way, Mitch McConnell, the ball with this is in his court now, which probably means some very, 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 very slimy things are about to happen. In other ma- matters involving... The Swiss are locking up their chocolate <laughs> right now. In other matters involving foreign affairs, uh, there was more news ab- about Ilhan Omar today, but it didn't involve her comments on the Israel lobby or the fallout. It didn't even involve the Middle East. No, it involved Venezuela. Democrats on the House Foreign Affairs Committee convened a hearing on the situation in Venezuela featuring three government witnesses, all supportive of the coup, including Elliot Abrams, who was named by Trump to be the special representative to Venezuela. Abrams has a history in coups in the region and once pled guilty to lying to Congress. But, hey, in this town, you always fail up. Also on hand to testify, acting assistant administrator for the Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean, a guy named Steve Olive, 
right there. And clearly unconcerned about any perception that this coup is about oil. The third witness at the hearing was Sandra Oudkirk, Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Department of State's Bureau of Energy Resources. (laughs) And she had this to say in testimony. Under the former Maduro regime, Venezuelan oil production steadily declined due to mismanagement, corruption, and a lack of investment. (laughs) She's throwing that out there, just making this pretty clear. Uh, Of course, we are involved in over trying to overthrow the Maduro government because that is the will of the people, not because they uh, have the world's largest oil <laughs> reserve, in case anyone was wondering. Now, look, given the more uh, hawkish members of this committee, the, the Democratic chairman of the committee is Elliot Engel, who is uh, extremely hawkish. There are other hawkish Dems on this panel. Every single Republican on the committee is a foaming at the mouth hawk and a panel of three witnesses here, all hawks. I got to say, I didn't really expect much from this hearing. Luckily, Code Pink was on hand and was immediately laying in to Abrams. We'll start with Mr. Abrams. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Chairman Engel, Ranking Member McCall, members of the committee. Mike down. Thank you for the opportunity to testify on our efforts to restore democracy in Venezuela. Don't listen to war criminals. Hold on. Yeah, good work there by po- Code Pink. Uh, good time to plug our interview last week with Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin. She actually invited uh, students to skip school and come protest at congressional hearings with the organization. Uh, we encourage that as Is well it too- over here. Oh, never mind. I was uh, no, I, I was going to make a joke, but if you're not sure, you should always err on the side of not making the joke, so I won't make Good idea. <laughs> Things did eventually settle down at the hearing, and later, another hawkish Democrat on the panel, Rep. Brad Sherman, began his questioning literally by saying this, and, and let me just remind you, this is a hearing on Venezuela, but go ahead, take it away, Brad. Wherever Russia goes... People flee. We have three million Syrians who have left their country and nearly the same number of Venezuelans. Where the fuck is he going with this, I wonder? Uh, Let's let Brad continue here. Uh, Mr. Abrams, are we uh, uh, discussing with the Russians how uh, we can make it plain to the permanent future Venezuelan government that they do not have to pay Russia and that they will not suffer any demerits uh, in, uh, in their credit rating for Western agencies and Western banks? We've begun to have those discussions. Uh, primarily, of course, uh, would be led by Treasury, but um, the interim government, the National Assembly, has said that they would repay debts. Some of those debts, I think, were never approved by the National Assembly. Ultimately, it is a decision that they're going to, the, like most of these, that they're going to have to make. But have we put the Russians on notice that we would support and require our banks to support a decision by the Venezuelan government to offset that 
by trillions of dollars of claims against Russia and that we would prohibit, we might choose to prohibit our banks from looking at any credit rating uh, that uh, was impaired by a failure to repay Russia. I don't believe that exact message. I hope you will. <laughs> this, is this as bizarre to you as it is to me? I mean, even if you're a dipshit who supports the coup, hates Maduro, all that stuff, why the fuck is this even on your mind right now? Of all the other things you can uh, cling on to, to to advance this coup. Also, it's not trillions. I don't know what uh, Sherman is talking about. It's about three uh, billion dollars that Venezuela's sovereign debt to Russia. And I, I wonder, by the way, if he thinks that um, <clears throat> China's debt to uh, Venezuela is also illegitimate, because uh, that that would be pretty interesting, considering how much U.S that China holds like this is a good way to fucking like start an international global like economic <laughs> total war over nothing yeah just uh, in invade country or help support coups in countries and then cancel uh, your your foes debt in those countries but, by the way I, I looked this up uh, after I heard Sherman say this, but after the U.S. invaded Iraq in uh, 2003, the Bush administration got all these countries to cancel Iraq's debt, uh, basically with the same same principle. But it wasn't it wasn't unilateral, and Russia did it, but they were very reluctant to do anything at first. Yeah, they like did it out of goodwill. Almost. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, it makes you think Sherman is uh, is jumping on the board with this coup just to stick it to Putin. Literally, his first line of questioning at this hearing, we can add it to our uh, file on Democratic reps whose brains are poisoned by Russiagate. I mean, liberalism is generally just a brain poison that I don't know what it is about it, but liberals love, they just love to show how fucking tough they are on foreign issues and how how just how fucking bad they want to bomb countries. Yeah. Uh, Democratic Rep Kendrick Meeks was a little better at the hearing. He's actually been to Venezuela a lot and was talking about working with Hugo Chavez and was also talking about past CIA coup attempts in Venezuela. In fact, his uh, first part of questioning here was quite good. And I saw back then that individuals who were poor who had never had anything from any other government, never any consideration, when I was on the ground to see that they, for the first time, was getting schools and hospitals and getting their fair share under, and this president, Hugo Chavez, was elected in a process to continue. And he faced those recalled elections and won fair and square. So I then saw that there was an attempted coup in Venezuela in 2002. And as certain CIA evidence has now been revealed, we, the day after the coup, acknowledged the coup government. The people of Venezuela went back in the streets and demanded that their democratically elected president was restored. So the context and the reason why I say that is, it's complicated and difficult for us in the United States to take the lead 
when in fact the Venezuelan people also know that we acknowledge not a, dip a democratically elected president, but we tried to undermine them. Really hard to argue with anything uh, Meeks said there. And uh, I, I definitely perked up in the hearing. I was kind of getting depressed at, at most of the content in this hearing to hear what Meeks said. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't exactly uh, stick the landing. Yeah, on we, we kept on waiting for the other shoe to drop. And here it was. I must admit, under Nicholas Maduro, I've seen the situation continue to deteriorate. And people of Venezuela are suffering. And I've seen him avoid some democratic elections. I've seen the National Assembly get democratically elected. <laughs> so there is democracy in Venezuela. That's why I recognize the National Assembly. No one elected the National Assembly president. Yes, they boycotted the election. They, <laughs> they boycotted the presidential election. Guido is declaring the, himself president, wasn't elected to lead the country. Uh, complete bullshit. Yeah. Meeks did say he was concerned about a possible military intervention by the Trump administration and said the best route would be immediate free and fair elections. Uh, Rep. Cicilline also uh, had his turn on questioning, and he did focus on uh, that military intervention part and whether or not the administration is actually considering it because Elliot Abrams has said that... <laughs> Military is on the table. Military option is always on the table. So here was uh, Cicilline pressing Abrams on that issue. I am concerned by continuing comments from the Trump administration, noting that the use of military force is, as the president said, an option. And so for you, Mr. Abrams, my first question is, we have not, of course, Congress of the United States has not declared war on Venezuela, correct? Correct. Is there an existing statutory authorization that would allow for a military intervention in Venezuela? Yes or no? Not to my knowledge. Has Venezuela attacked the United States' territories or possessions or its armed forces? No. Has the administration increased troop deployments to countries including Colombia, neighboring Venezuela, at any point in the last month? Don't believe so. Are there, are there currently any plans to or discussions about moving additional combat troops to Colombia or any other country that neighbors Venezuela? Not to my knowledge. Okay. So, Mr. Abrams, what is particularly concerning to me is that uh, in light of the fact there is no legal authority to uh, express the use of military force as an option, it's unclear to me how the president or anyone in the administration can claim it's an option on the table because it is not. And to the extent that we are suggesting that it is, we are misleading the international community, we're misleading the people in Venezuela. So I, I urge you to take back the message to the administration that it is not authorized and not helpful. Uh, and Some applause in the room there at the end of Rip Cicilline's questioning. Good, strong line of questioning. Uh, unfortunately, the lack of an authorization for military force and the lack of any threat from a target country has not stopped administrations from going to war in the past. Also, uh, Abrams would not commit that there would not be uh, any military action, citing that past presidents have indeed taken military action uh, without Congress approval. Yeah, he's not wrong about that. You, no. you can't fault him for, for making an accurate observation, and, and uh, maybe Democrats uh, shouldn't have just fucking lined up to support the... Uh, disastrous obama's disastrous war in libya there yeah 
Uh, next up, we had Congressman Joaquin uh, Castro, who was the first lawmaker on the panel to bring up Abram's criminal history, which is definitely pertinent, pertinent to the events of today. Here was Castro. The role of the United States is not to handpick the next leader of Venezuela. And Mr. Abrams, I have a question for you. My question is whether you're aware of any transfers of weapons or defense equipment by the United States government to groups in Venezuela opposed to Nicolas Maduro since you were appointed special representative for Venezuela. No. And I want to be respectful of you, but also honest. The reason that I ask that question, there's been a McClatchy news report of such an incident. Have you, are you aware of that news report? Saw the report, yes. I ask this question because you have a record of such actions. In Nicaragua, you were involved in the effort to covertly provide lethal aid to the Contras against the will of Congress. You ultimately pled guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress in, re in regard to your testimony during the Iran-Contra scandal. So I ask you the question, can we trust your testimony today? Well, you can make that decision for yourself, Mr. <laughs> Castro. I can tell you that the answer to your question is no. It's a simple uh, and unequivocal no. Uh, there's been no such uh, transfer of arms. Well, if you can't trust his testimony, and he's leaving it up to us to figure that out, then you really can't trust his denial sounds about like weapons been, shipments. Sounds like weapons are on their way to some very awful people. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, of course, was waiting to hear from Rep. Ilhan Omar, who sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee. And when it was finally her turn, she didn't disappoint. Here's how her questioning started. And notice how similar it was to the questioning we just played from Congressman Castro. But notice how much matter Abrams gets when it's coming from Omar. In 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the Iran Kortra affair, for which you were later pardoned by President George H.W. Bush. I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful. If I can respond to that. Uh, um, it wasn't a question. Uh, I, On February, that was it not, was, that was not a question. I that was the, I, I reserve the right I'm to sorry. my time. It is not, it is not right. That was Remember not a question. On February 8th. Who is not permitted to reply. That, that was not a question. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that, that was, by the way, disgraceful from Elliot Engel, the chair, because... Under no circumstances are witnesses ever allowed to do that. In yeah, to just interrupt like that. It's always unless the lawmakers. Brett Kavanaugh. It, well, yeah, unless they're Brett Kavanaugh. But even the, then, uh, I feel attorney like attorney general, acting <laughs> attorney general, who more and more are uh, Republican witnesses yeah. acting belligerent during these hearings and getting away with it. It seems like just an utter filling of his diaper. But again, Castro had just made the same yeah. statement. Omar makes a statement and he flips out. Omar then brought up the 1982 El Mazote massacre in El Salvador, which killed 800 people. It was carried out by the El Salvadorian military with the backing of the U.S. Abrams, who was involved in policy in the region at the time with the Reagan administration, dismissed that massacre as communist propaganda. 
Needless to say, Abrams did not appreciate this line of questioning about the massacre and U.S. support for it from Ilhan Omar later in the hearing. 800 civilians, including children as young as two years old, were brutally murdered by U.S. trained troops. During that massacre, some of those troops bragged about raping a 12-year-old girl before they killed them. Girls before they killed them. You later said that the U.S. policy in El Salvador was a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you still think so? From the day that President Duarte was elected in a free election to this day, El Salvador has been a democracy. That's a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement that happened under our watch? That is a ridiculous question. and I Yes will not or no? No. I, I will sorry, Mr. I will Chairman, take that as a yes. I am not going to respond to that kind of personal attack, which is not a question. It was yes a question. or no, would you personal. support an armed faction within Venezuela that engages in war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide, if you believe they were serving U.S. interest, as you did in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua? I am not going to respond to that question. I'm sorry. I don't think this entire line of questioning is meant to be real questions, and so I will not reply. He's not replying because he doesn't want to commit Whether perjury. You, under your watch, a genocide will take place, and you will look the other way because American interests were being upheld is a fair question because the American people want to know that anytime we engage a country, that we think about <clears throat> what our actions could be and how we believe our values are being farthered. That is my question. Will you make sure that human rights are not violated and that we uphold international and human rights? I suppose there is a question in there, and the answer is that the entire thrust of American policy in Venezuela <clears throat> is to support the Venezuelan people's effort to restore democracy. To <laughs> okay, I'm sure. <clears throat> I'm sure, bro. Uh, yeah, that was some extremely good shit from the congresswoman there really pressing uh, a war criminal who just gets off pretty easy and it, in it, most of his appearances. And it's important to to get him on the record on this. And I know that on its face, the idea of a question of will you support genocide in Venezuela might be ridiculous as if he will say yes. But this is to get a man on the record who has lied about his past genocidal activities yeah. before. So I don't know, maybe a few years down the line, we can try to not fuck this up again and actually throw the book at war criminals and people like Elliot Abrams who just get away with doing disgusting things all over the planet. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, we won't. But at least, again, like getting him on the record uh, is another yeah. tool in the arsenal. We uh, are not about becoming fanboys for members of Congress, and we will critically report on Ilhan Omar, I'm sure, as, uh, as we move along here. But uh, 
she's shown a lot of courage lately. Yeah. That should be commended. And her line of questioning during this hearing, even under all the fire that she's been under uh, the last few days, was admirable. And I think it's also worth reminding people, as you're listening to Ilan Omar uh, really pressing Elliot Abrams on the situation in Venezuela, that certain lawmakers like AOC have not even released a statement on Venezuela mm. yet. Yep. Not even released a dang statement. All right, uh, that's uh, that's the news here. I guess it's time to check out what's in the inbox, from the inbox, the part of the show where we read some awful emails. Sam, and what'd you get? So here's how you try to make it sound politically palatable to force grandma to eat cat food. An organization pitched us. It's Hack Fellow, who wants to slash Social Security and Medicare. The group is called... The Institute for Policy Innovation, because of course it is, a think tank smug about starving old people to death, has to give itself as pompous of a pro-business name as possible. The subject of the email they sent, new book offers roadmap of pulling America from the entitlements cliff. (laughs) On the Edge shows how the U.S. can move away from the crumbling patchwork of unsustainable government programs and easily address funding for healthcare, welfare, and retirement. The reforms proposed by the book's authors, actuary Mark E. Lito, an Institute for Policy Innovation resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, grants working Americans the freedom to set aside their own money in their own accounts that invests and grows with the economy. So Americans uh, need freedom from their, their, from their bosses and their bill collectors. Uh, they won't find freedom that gives them retirement uh, in Social Security privatization. This is, this is patently ridiculous. Uh, on the issue of Social Security solvency, by the way, it's true people have been living longer and longer since the program was first established, and that makes it harder to fund Social Security. But rich people are the ones who push up life expectancy the most, and they have their Social Security taxes capped at around $133,000. People complaining about Social Security solvency to call for cuts and not for raising the cap are literally calling for more poor people to die. That's why they have to dress up their policy in duplicitous nerd language like pulling America from the entitlements cliff. Fuck the Institute for Policy Innovation and may all its executives have their land seized. <laughs> so, Felt like I was getting into the garbage can uh, just warming up. mode there. They're just bit, warming up. But. So uh, I'm guessing we're going to pass on this guest as well <laughs> for the podcast. Yeah. I think so. I think so. By the way, another thing that really grinds my gears about this is they're basically saying that a like more choices in in your retirement will help you retire. As again, it's just people don't have enough money, not like they don't know what to do with it. And uh, this is like they want to they want Americans to basically switch their social security accounts to uh, investing in the stock market, which never crashes uh so that's that's also very good about this plan <laughs> anyway yeah we're, we're passing on this interview uh doctor, no matter what people say in the chat room dr merrill matthews and mark e Litow canceled canceled i think they should both be in a competitive dog food eating contest <laughs> to see what it's what their policies will do <laughs> all right shall we move on to the interview let's do it Everyone in Washington this week started piling on Ilhan Omar after the left-leaning lawmaker and Somali refugee made a joke about the influence of the Israel lobby 
It reminded us a little bit about a group called the Canary Mission, an organization that intimidates and smears pro-Palestine activists, primarily people of color. So we brought on journalist Alex B. Kane to talk about Omar and Canary Mission. Kane has covered Israel, Palestine, civil liberties, and he wrote, excuse me, Israel, Palestine, and civil liberties. And he wrote an article last year for The Intercept about Canary Mission. (laughs) Excuse me, again. And he joined us for an interview that we recorded earlier today. So Alex, there's been a lot of uh, talk, there's been a perception lately that Israel's influence is waning. We have freshman members of Congress not afraid to speak out against uh, the Israeli government's atrocities. We have members like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib supporting uh, the BDS movement. And although the anti-BDS bill passed the Senate recently, none of the major 2020 candidates supported it, except for Amy Klobuchar, who, based on recent headlines, is clearly a psychopath. Yeah, she might not be a candidate for too much longer. <laughs> but, but Alex, I'm curious, how does this analysis, this perception of is Israel's waning influence on U.S. politics, how does that hold up after uh, what we've seen happen to Ilan Omar over the last two days? Yeah, so, you know, at, at, on one hand, it's true, but it's also true from essentially 100% ironclad support for Israel that has been the norm for the past, you know, half century. So when we say Israel's influence is waning, quote unquote, we're really saying Israel Israel's going from having, you know, uh, 420 members of the House being you know, right-wing supporters of Israel to maybe 415 or something like that. And I say 420 rather than 435 because there have always been some members, both Republicans and Democrats, depending on what um, school of foreign policy thought you come from, that have been critical of Israel. So, um, yes, the fact that we have two members of Congress, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, who are openly supportive of the BDS movement, is incredibly significant and is a, a a clear reflection of the split within the Democratic Party among the grassroots and the Democratic leadership over the question of Israel. Whether that shows that Israel's influence in Israel and the lobby and in the Israel lobby's influence is waning, you know, I would say it's waning, but only on a minimal basis at this point, right? So I mean, you you, you don't basically. My point is, you do not see the shift among grassroots Democrats towards uh, full-throated support for Palestinian human rights being reflected in the Democratic Party establishment. I thought it was interesting, and I don't want to look too much into this uh, because I feel like, uh, I mean, let's be honest, it's a little pseudoscientific, but I couldn't help but notice that Ilhan Omar's tweets were not ratioed as they say on Twitter, and uh, in case I ha- we have any listeners who don't know what that means, the ratio is uh, a concept used to describe bad tweets. So if a tweet has more replies than likes, it's called a ratio. You've been ratioed because everyone's responding to you to tell you what a <laughs> shitty tweet it was. Ilhan Omar... It's never was- happened to me. <laughs> not, not, nor me, actually. Ilhan Omar, uh, not ratioed. Nor her tweets have been deleted. Nor nor have her tweets been deleted. So it yeah, does so it does seem to suggest that there is not this widespread undying love for Israel in the way that democratic leaders and democratic lawmakers are claiming. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I have no, honestly, I have no idea what, I'm not going to opine on what uh, the lack of ratio means for that. I mean, I, basically, I mean, you know, the, the folks on Twitter that are paying attention to this issue are the, the most plugged in yeah. to this issue. Um, and, you know, the fact is that people are really excited about Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib uh, in me- uh, being members of Congress and, um, you know, you know, raising their voices and putting their necks on the line for for an issue that is very um, hot. You know, you, you, you talk about Palestinian human rights and you talk about the BDS movement in particular, mm-hmm. you are going to get slammed by the leadership, by corporate media. And so, you know, you have a you have an energized activist base and that activist base has also spread its message to to other uh, Democrats and leftists, of course, you have, you know, the Democratic Socialists of America, you know, it's a pretty standard yep. position among, you know, the left that, you know, Palestinians deserve human rights and equality. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, what this says for Americans writ large, I mean, you know, I don't think, me, I, you know, I, I think there are certain subsets of Americans that pay very close attention to this issue, and there's a wide swath that do not. And that wide swath has been uh, – th- there's a generational shift you know, for, yeah. for many years after the 1967 war in particular when U.S. support for Israel really ramped up. Um, you, know, you had Americans raised on the notion of Israel as a safe haven for Jews decimated after the Holocaust and, of course, Israel as a military power – you know, a feisty small military power striking back against genocidal Arab states that surround them. And so for a wide swath of Americans, say over 40, over 50, that is the image of Israel that they have. Um, but for young Americans, you know, and, and particularly for, for you know, so-called millennials and, you know, people plugged into social media and are following um, politics very closely, they have only seen Israel in the context of a military occupation that started in 1967. And, uh, uh, to, to, you know, young people are not down with military occupation and Israel's maintenance of a separate and an unequal regime that keeps Palestinians caged and confined. Yeah, and I don't want to overstate the uh, power of social media because perhaps uh, even under conventional media, it's easy to tell uh, what kind of gross atrocities and ethnic cleansing that Israel does. But it, it's a lot easier for this generation to, to um, connect directly with Palestinians and to hear what's going on directly through them uh, rather through any kind of filter but I'm glad I'm glad you brought up the notion that you know how many the percentage of the the vague percentage of Americans who are actually really plugged into this issue because I think that does speak very much to the lobby's clear influence as if most constituents care about trying to ban BDS the way Congress is doing about uh, uh, about trying to give Israel a quote-unquote qualitative military edge, about giving them F-16s, about changing the U.S. Uh, embassy to Jerusalem, and all these little arcane issues that yeah, yeah, it, it's the death of Palestine by a thousand paper cuts. Well, more yeah. like a thousand slashes. It's not really paper cuts. Bombs, it, bombs. It's pretty. I, mean, it, I just say it's pretty ironic that 
Everyone is saying like Ilhan Omar overstated the influence of the lobby right as Congress is trying to fucking ram a truck through the First Amendment and ban B and not well, not ban BDS, but very clearly punish BDS in an unconstitutional way. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, quite, quite frankly, I don't think many Americans uh, support. Uh, no, sorry, no what BDS means. If you yeah. walk up to a random American and say, do you know what the BDS movement is? They probably I think, think BDSM, <laughs> yes. quite frankly. Exactly. Uh, that, that's probably true. And so, but, you know, the debates in Congress are only going to increase people's knowledge of BDS. And, you know, it, it's going to be an issue in the 2020 presidential campaign. And I do think the issue of BDS and Palestine in general will um, spread the word about exactly what's going on, or at least pike people's interest in in what is going on. And and you know the, the the right. And that's actually a really good point about the 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 Israel lobby. And I and I don't think that the Israel lobby is the causal factor in why America uh, gives Israel over three billion dollars in military aid a year. I think there are a couple of uh, uh, a constellation of factors in a mm -hmm. sense that put that. But I I, I do think. It's very important to recognize that there is an influential, uh, uh, organized, you know, interest groups that work in Washington that um, push U.S. policy towards Israel and the way that it goes. And actually, if you look at some of the detailed polls, you know, there's all there, there there's different polls. It depends on what you look at. You know, you say, you know, you you ask people who do you sympathize with more, Israelis or Palestinians? The majority of Americans say Israelis because they probably don't know anything about Palestinians, but. If you look at recent polls, um, particularly taken uh, by the University of Maryland, this professor Shibli Telhami, who has been tracking this, he, um, you know, I, I recently interviewed him, and he said that you know it's been consistent that Americans, when they when you ask them a question about who should we favor in this conflict, they say stay neutral, mm. and actually staying neutral is a pre it's it would be quite a shift from where we are now because the United States is so heavily weighted towards Israel you know 3.8 billion dollars in military aid per year that's more than any other country in the world and that pays for the F16s that drop the bombs on Gaza that pays for the rifles that Israel kills to that Israel uses to kill Palestinian protesters, you know, the UN veto that we consistently use to protect Israel from international condemnation. I mean, you name it, the United States is fully behind Israel. And that's true among Democrats and Republicans, among the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Pretty disgusting uh, thing about the aid to Israel is if you look at the uh, list of countries that U.S. gives aid to, Israel is on the top of the list and the ones below it are basically pretty poor countries that receive uh, uh, aid and and uh, the aid that helps them a, a very small amount but it's it's pretty disgusting seeing that uh, next to Israel and all the money we give it for its uh, militarized uh, apartheid state genocide machine yeah I mean you know we, we, we spend on a on a on a uh on like a yearly basis since 9/11 we've spent more money on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan um, and and funding those security forces but that's from a sort of different pool of money and if you look at you know mm. yeah if you want to compare i mean you know obviously we've been 
backing Israel, you know, since Israel's founding with economic aid and starting in the, uh, you know, 1960s, began to to sell Israel weapons. And then if you add them all up, you know, the United States has spent uh, well over a hundred billion dollars on mostly military aid to Israel. You know, the the country after Israel in terms of military aid is um, Egypt, and that also that's related to Israel. Is, Related to Israel, in in in, I mean, we, we don't. Uh, I won't get into that at the moment, unless right, right. you're interested in that. No, no, yeah. no, no. We should probably uh, only touch on that. <laughs> Forget Egypt. Forget Egypt. <laughs> hey, Alex, Ilhan was obviously correct in her uh, tweet, uh, talking about how the Israel lobby leverages money and political donations to execute its agenda. But as you mentioned, there's a constellation of factors here behind uh, U.S. unwavering support for Israel. Uh, one of those is the fact, and we've seen this very, very clearly over the last two days, is how effective uh, APAC in the Israeli Israel lobby is at casting any criticism of its Israel whatsoever as anti-Semitic. I mean, that's been a pretty uh, 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 effective tool in their toolkit to squash any sort of criticism. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and you know. Um, Rightly so, um, uh, people do not want to. People are afraid of um, being anti-Semitic, and they don't want to be anti-Semitic in, in general, right? I mean, obviously, neo-Nazis are fine with that, but the, <laughs> the vast majority of Americans have, I, I think, you know, a a basic understanding of the Holocaust, a basic understanding of how deadly anti-Semitism can be, how destructive it can be. Um, and 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 particularly um, in the Trump era, when we have a president that has empowered um, white white nationalists and neo Nazis, and and we're, when we've seen the the massacre in Pittsburgh, people are um, very um, uh, uh, scared uh, for Jews and among Jews, right? So then you so you take that sort of general feeling. And general fear around the fact of anti-Jewish hatred in this country, particularly now. And then you weaponize it. The right, the right is weaponizing it, and um, also um, essentially pro-Israel Democrats are weaponizing it, and they are using it to go after anybody who steps out of line. On the question of Palestine, and so, of course, uh, you saw this with Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. You know, anti-Semitism, the specter of being labeled an anti-Semite, is being used to shut people up. That's what this campaign is about. This campaign is about putting Ilhan Omar in line, saying that if you dare step out and speak honestly about the role of the Israel lobby in U.S. politics, and about the suffering of Palestinians under Israeli occupation, we will call you an anti-Semite. And that will be your label. And we will get people like Chuck Schumer and Jerry Nadler on board. They won't defend you. They will join us. That is exactly what's happening. Um, you know, we will see whether it will work with her. You know, she obviously is, you know, a, 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 a firebrand of a politician. She's a she's a, one of the stars of the progressive class of the Democratic Party, you know, it will be interesting to watch her talk about Israel uh, in the future. 
Alex, and yeah, that's it's clear here that this tactic isn't anything new. And one of the reasons why we wanted to bring you on is last year you wrote uh, a, a story about the Canary Mission, which uses a lot of these same tactics to crush people who criticize Israel and label them as anti-Semites, except in this case, uh, it's almost even worse. Go ahead and talk about the Canary Mission for our audience who uh, isn't aware of what it is. Yeah, yeah. So um, the Canary Mission, Canary Mission is a website. It it popped up around uh, 2015 and um, it... Conveniently a few months after the uh, latest awful Israeli massacre in Gaza with uh, yeah. Operation whatever it was called. Operation Protective Edge, yeah. Thank you, and sorry. of course, uh, Israel's assaults on Gaza fuel more criticism of Israel because people look at what the Israeli army is doing to Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and um, the Canary Mission is a, is a, is a, was a website that was created, and essentially it debuted and continues to feature dossiers on mostly students, some professors, uh, but student activists for Palestinian rights. And, uh, you know, at the top of the page of the website, it says, you know, if you're racist, the world should know. And so basically it appropriates a legitimate— Don't sign your tweets. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Go on. Totally. It, you know, it basically appropriates a legitimate concern over racism and anti-Semitism in the United States and uses that to, as a cudgel to um, bash people who support Palestinian human rights, particularly students. So we're talking about young people on campus who are just getting their feet wet in politics. You know, many women of color, Arabs and Muslims are particularly targeted on the website. And, you know, they they they, they compile a dossier, a profile of them, and they rip a lot of their tweets and Facebook posts out of context. You know, you, you say something kind of you know you, you know if you're on twitter you're, you're you're watching israel bomb gaza and you're saying oh this you know israel has blood on its hands and you know this is a massacre and then they will and, and you know like this you know this reminds me of like you know what the germans did in world war ii or something like that and um you know people then they'll rip that out of context and say you're an anti-semite yeah, I I, uh, I wanted to make that quip about uh, not signing your tweets with the racism thing because, as you noted, this tends to skew the the um, the, the the people they quote unquote profile on the Khmeri mission website tends to skew toward uh, people of color and and, and yeah. it ruins their lives. It ruins their fucking yeah. lives. Yes, and 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 just to be clear, you know, I mean, Canary Mission has been very smart about this because they do highlight legitimate instances of anti-Semitism, and you know, there are young people on campus that don't have a full understanding of of uh, you know the relationship between Israel and the Jewish community in the United States, and you know what's anti-Semitic and what's not. Sometimes people do go over that line, but. Should should someone's life be ruined? Should the first Google result of their name be, um, you know, this person's name is an anti-Semite and a racist because they criticize Israel? And maybe they stepped over the line in one tweet and they, you know, and, and they said something that could be that that touches on anti-Semitic tropes. Right. You know, people don't know like that, like like it's just but, you know, is it fair to 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 hold a young person just sort of forming their politics to 
uh, uh, that standard when, you know, if they're, you know, I'm not talking about neo-Nazis who join white nationalists. I'm talking about young people who are getting involved in politics, particularly, you know, politics around Palestine and the Middle East. And, you know, this is, um, you know, on one hand, it's a simple issue. Israel is oppressing Palestinians. But if you look at what the United States is doing to Israel and, and, um, and the horror, you know, people, people's emotions get inflamed, etc. Um, this is not to excuse anti-Semitism, but it is to put into context what Canary Mission is doing. And yeah, in terms of how it impacts people's lives, you know, I mean, a lot of people are afraid to speak out openly about what Canary Mission has done to them because they don't want to open themselves to further harassment. But we know that, you know, university administrators have questioned students about their Canary Mission profiles. You know, having that, even just the profile itself, leads to a lot of anxiety, panic attacks. You know, people are really stressed about this. They're, they, when you Google someone and you say you're applying for a job, you know, you're going to get really freaked out that your employer is going to look and they're going to say, oh, shit. I really don't want to hire this person because he's an anti-Semite. And right? also, uh, yeah, and also, as you noted in your Intercept piece, I think this has led to people getting fucking terrorism investigations and, yes. vi and visits from the police. Yes, one of my uh, – so I did two stories on Canary Mission. One on its sort of impact on, on a wide swath of students, but then I also did another story about how – Canary Mission profiles have been used in FBI and police investigations mm. of students, um, and um, you know that's that's deeply troubling. The FBI is is taking this um, right wing, um, uh, you know, pro Israel racist website as a legitimate source of information about student activists who are speaking out for Palestinian rights, and that really can have a chilling effect on people's ability to advocate and organize for Palestine in this country. Did you ever, Alex, get to the bottom of who's behind this? Well, um, no, and a, and, and a bunch of reporters were on it. And, and I mean, it's still a little murky, but uh, Josh Nathan Cases of The Forward has done the best investigative work uh, about who's funding it and who's behind it. And so just to try to sum up, he found out uh, I mean, so Canary Mission, right, it's anonymous, and they were pretty careful, although they made a couple of mistakes, um, and their funders made a couple of mistakes that allowed people to, to, to peel back the veneer of anonymity a bit. But for a while, people were, were wondering, you know, who's funding them and, and who's behind them. And Josh Nathan Casis uh, showed um, that uh, a couple of Jewish American um, a community foundations in – the California yeah. uh, funded the Canary Mission. Uh, you know, the, and, and again, and just for your audience that might not know sort of American Jewish politics, like the American Jewish institutions are are very right wing on Israel, and they're and they're, they're not necessarily representative of where the majority of American Jews are. And so, you know, it's not like the majority of American Jews are represented by these institutions, but these institutions that have the most money in the community are funding. Um, a canary mission, uh, and, and also there, there's, and, and it also has direct links to Israelis, um, and um, uh, you know, basically Josh um, of the Forward found out that a, a number of ex-employees of this organization, Aish Hatora, uh, which is a sort of uh, uh, Orthodox Jewish organization that also engages in Israel advocacy, a bunch of ex-employees of them um, work for Canary Mission, so it, it is in, hmm. funded in part by American Jewish uh, communal funds, 
worked on by by uh, uh, some some Israelis, you know, um, uh, including expat, you know, dual citizen Israelis, British Israelis, American Israelis, and uh, it's also been used by the Israeli government to ban people um, from entering Palestine, and particularly for Palestinian Americans, that's a real threat. A lot of Palestinian Americans have family in the West Bank. In Jerusalem, in Gaza, and they want to they and 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 Israel controls all border um, crossings. So you have to come into contact with Israeli officials, and they will look you up on Canary Mission. And if you're there, very high chance that you will not be able to get into the country, and you will be deported, which has happened in a number of instances. Damn. Well, what whatever we do, we better not criticize the funding sources going uh, into that. And we are back live. In the Sentinel Ford, I fucked up the audio there. At the end of our interview, actually, I didn't really fuck up the audio. We did the interview in the morning, and I forgot to charge the <laughs> recorder overnight. So uh, it died right at the end, though. So in case it wasn't clear, special thanks to Alex Kane, freelance journalist focusing on Israel and Palestine and civil liberties. Follow him on Twitter. At Alex B. Kane and check out his website, alexbkane.com. There was something I wanted to say uh, while Alex was talking about Canary Mission and how uh, they pull tweets sometimes that they might be a little fucked up on their face, but they're totally pulled out of context and used uh, in a political campaign to ruin people's lives. And it reminds me how one of the leading critics of Ilhan Omar. And uh, one of the leading uh, um, <clears throat> people on social media who pushes uh, the accusations of anti-Semitism in bad faith is Ben Shapiro, who's known for having tweeted stuff like basically calling for genocide. Yeah. Like, you know, saying that like hashtag settlements rock and stuff. And the, the worst. The, yeah. The equivalent of this. Maybe the equivalent of the, uh, not even the equivalent of this. I don't know. Just some some flip side version of this, but pro Palestine, which by the way is you know generally good because <laughs> pro Palestine is good, pro Israel is bad. But anyway, the point is is that the, that the double standard is that people get their lives ruined. And Ben Shapiro is still there. He's still yeah. tweeting. He's still got lots of. I support. think. Um, well, I don't think anybody really has the racism per inch ratio that Ben Shapiro packs. He's He's got a lot of racism he, in that little frame. He's the Muggsy Bugs of racism. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was getting at. The spud web of racism. Yeah, yeah. Um, the chat, lots of good stuff going on in the chat room. We've got, well, it turns out, I guess Sco Chapo scooped us on the Klobuchar stuff. Well, did they though? I mean, because we yeah, we, we, we had, had the it envelope in the envelope. <laughs> <laughs> we actually took a picture of Sam Knight holding the newspaper from that day <laughs> with the envelope. I didn't load it in the graphics generator, but look, we we, we had it. We we had it before Chapo. We did, but point is, the rumor had been floating around, and 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 Slate did put it to print. But yeah, Chapo did talk about it before us. Congratulations to Carter Moon, our 420th subscriber on YouTube, which means someone can unsubscribe right now and resubscribe and also become the 420th subscriber. 
People are uh, calling my investigation of tweets where Trump has said nice as hard-hitting investigative journalism at its nicest. <laughs> Stephen says, Jonathan says, this is real journalism. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Mad Adam says that Max Boot is funny dumb. But Ben Shapiro is scary because he's brainwashing young people. Agree that Shapiro is much more nefarious than Max Boot, I, who's a clown and uh, was defending Elliot Abrams online and tearing his shirt over Ilhan Omar, and everyone was just dumping on him. It's basically genocide denial. Trilburn, the, 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 the famous Twitter user Trilburn, uh, who runs the Age of Napoleon podcast, says this is basically like Holocaust denial. It's fucked up. Yeah. yeah. I don't I've never met one of the people that <clears throat> Ben Shapiro is inspiring, and they must exist. I guess I've seen clips of them on Twitter. But talk about the, the oh, dweebiest people. Oh my god, I saw a really bad one. I, I forget what it was, but I was just I was just searching for tweets and this uh, uh I'm glad I I can't remember her, her handle because she's just some random shitbag like University of Alabama student and you know who cares she doesn't need a dog pile but basically <laughs> basically the shirt was uh like ben shapiro's wife is a doctor which is just like what on earth would possess you to wear that i bet she's a dentist and, and she was she was saying something like really looking forward to ben shapiro's appearance i think what what purpose he serves is not that uh, he he just basically makes people who are already conservative feel less bad about being conservative. They they he tries to make it like edgy and cool and hip. Um, but he's just he's just racist and yeah. it just sounds like a fucking like a, an angry preteen <laughs> who who's you know who's mastered law who claims he's mastered logic. <laughs> But he just really just like screams and works on things on his own definition. Anyway, we all know Ben Shapiro sucks. Let's uh, let's move on. What do you think about it's all about the Benjamins studio? It's all about the Benjamins <laughs> studio. I got to say, Ilhan Omar did something wrong because I've had that stupid fucking I'm song curious, stuck in my head I'm all week. curious which song the chat room has had stuck in their head. We've had the Whether hard it's rock the version. Puff Daddy one. It's for me it's been the Puff Daddy one. For me it's been the uh the well they're they're both Puff Daddy, but it's the the one the remix, the Puff Daddy remix with Dave Grohl. Okay, not the one with Dave Grohl. I'm talking <laughs> about the the first Puff Daddy one. Yeah. What you want to do? Yeah. Want to be ballers, shot callers, ball Yeah, like I the one that I don't think I've ever heard the Dave Grohl one. I was just playing. Yeah, it. other than when you played, oh. like I hadn't. I it, it was not in my head. It had I, never been in my <laughs> head to. to I be think jogged. I, I think I have it in my head just because it's well because it's rock and it has like it's a little more musical. So there's like there's a tune that's catchy, but it's also just really annoying. And there's something like. There's something funny about like the most annoying stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Did we lose signal, by the way? Or uh, no, we just lost my uh, computer. Oh. But that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, we're gonna finish the show without my computer. We're gonna finish the show without your computer. We will. Shall we move on to read some prose? Yes. Let's read uh, some haiku. Yeah, I'm definitely not gonna. That <laughs> means we won't get any haiku music, but. 
I'll just we start don't, don't singing. To, it's all uh, about it. the Benjamins. Again. We can get maybe, maybe we Benjamins, can get Nate to uh, to make a little humming noise in the background here. Enter Nate. You want to? No, he's unreliable. He's let's unreliable. Just, uh, yeah, let's just. Steven says, by the way, that he likes the uh, original version. The remix was too cheesy. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the first one was better. The first one we all remember, like it would come on at the bar mitzvah when you get your cherry coke from the bar and you're heading to the dance floor like <laughs> hell yeah and then like one of the hired people hands you like fake $100 in monopoly money and you go to the the, the limbo bar with your friends and you're just like <laughs> making it rain anyway let's read some poetry anyways we got we give uh we write haiku for all our subscribers $5 subscribers uh and we're going to do that now Yes, so, we are. I think you're first, right? Yeah, this is this is for Jordan. This is for Jordan. Be nice to Abrams. Think about the war crimes that he didn't commit. <laughs> Turn your computer over here for me a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> Thank you, Jordan. This one goes out to Andrew. Dog shows got it wrong. Don't measure these skull sizes. Measure licks and tricks. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, Andrew. Thank you. And do, thank you to... What were you going to say? Do they measure skulls? Dog skulls? I think they do. Like, I think that's up. what it's all about. It's all about like the size of their head, their, their body arch, the lines. I was watching the... Dog uh, phrenology. That's what a dog show is. A, it's dog, dog phrenology. Show is dog phrenology. That's yes, that is correct. Up. I would like to see a dog show where they focus on the dog's personality. <laughs> like the dog that brings you the slippers and looks really cute while doing it. Anyway, uh, shall we move on to some good old acrimony here with the garbage can? Or do you want me to stall for 15 more seconds? Try to get... stall for 15 more. Can you stall 15 more seconds? Because we might I can have stall. the computer back. I think I can stall. Let me go back to the chat room. Mad Adam says, I've re-listened to old Snoop Dogg since the Harris comment. This is referencing... Oh, we didn't uh, even talk about that. We didn't that. even talk about that. We should have talked about that. Kamala Harris said that she smoked weed while listening in college. She graduated in 1986. She said she smoked weed in college while listening uh, to Tupac and Snoop, was it? Tupac yeah. and Snoop? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Because it has to be West Coast, neither of which had come out while she was in college. <laughs> So, basically, uh, there there is a whole Kamala Harris scandal about... She might be the first politician to get in trouble for lying about smoking weed. I don't get it. Like, it's not a problem if you smoked weed. It's not a problem. I, like, I had, is she making up the story? I had a Did she not smoke well, weed? Well, okay, I had a very convoluted theory about how she, did, she wanted to lie about smoking weed in the 90s or something assuming she had already passed the bar by then because there's some stupid arcane norm about political appointees in Washington and and when it's acceptable for them to stop smoking weed and, and not and uh, Reagan had a Supreme Court nominee who had to withdraw because he smoked weed with his law students and people said that was a big deal because he had already passed the bar and he was doing crimes and stuff so Maybe that's a reason, but also like that could be it. That's pretty that, compelling. That could, that could be it. I but, could also see her completely making it up. And <laughs> as a lot of people have no, noted online, and I agree with, I sort of hope she's making it up and that she hasn't smoked weed, <laughs> because 
I mean, how cynical can you be to have smoked weed and then devote your career to busting people for smoking weed? Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that's, uh, but you can, I, like, I don't put it past her that she did that. And that seems to be probably the way all prosecutors operate, considering most people have smoked weed when they're in college and shit. So, yeah. I, George, it's cop. It's George cop W. Mentality. Bush and, and Bill Clinton had done drugs and they were, they were pretty, uh, pretty hard drug warriors. Um, you know, but not saying it's good. It's just whatever. All right. Well, fuck, we, uh, fuck, fuck that shit. We've, and, uh, uh, Kamala Harris is a cop and I shall not be voting for her ever. Yeah. Uh, I know we didn't get any of it while we were doing some haiku and people sometimes like to hear it. It's kind of calming. So here's a little bit of the haiku music. And, uh, on that interns, please bring in the garbage can. Ah, uh, yes. Put it next to the piano. <laughs> Put it next to that... There you go. Come on in. ...tray of pre-poured red and white wines. That Bring it on in. next to the cheese and cracker plate. Yep. Right there is good. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, interns. Right at the climax there. <laughs> All right. Garbage candidate number one, Chelsea Clinton. What? <laughs> Chelsea helped kick off the Ilhan Omar firing squad this week, coming at her with her usual shtick on Twitter, basically the equivalent of, let me talk to your manager. Do you know who my parents are? (laughs) When liberals on Twitter started hand-wringing over Omar's all about the Benjamins joke, Chelsea immediately joined in, tweeting not-so-subtle dog whistles about how she was offended by Omar, quote, as an American. Again, Omar is a Somali refugee. Clinton also said that she will reach out to Omar's office as if she had any sort of authority to discipline Omar, also as if she has any expertise on the matter. The only credentials Chelsea Clinton has is that she was born to powerful people. She's just a nepotist, careerist liberal pulling the status card to attack Omar in a racist dogpile. She is cynically invoking anti-Semitism to do it. As a Jew, I think it's fucked up. Chelsea Clinton has appointed herself my spokesperson to engage in a bigoted smear campaign on my behalf. As a guy with a podcast, (laughs) I might throw her in a metaphorical waste receptacle for doing it. This week, Chelsea Clinton is nominated for the the garbage can. (laughs) Garbage candidate number two, Kevin McCarthy. Barely two months ago, the House Minority Leader was tweeting out actually anti-Semitic shit claiming that a bunch of Jews were trying to buy the 2016 election. One month ago, a member of McCarthy's own caucus, Steve King, said, what's the problem with white nationalism? A member of McCarthy's own leadership team, Steve Scalise, favorably compared himself to David Duke. So it's pretty fucking rich to hear the House Minority Leader throwing around charges of anti-Semitism. Of course, it always makes sense when you realize the accusations are completely baseless and are motivated by Ilhan's race and religion and probably her gender too, more than anything she's ever said or tweeted. In fact, what started all of this was the fact that Kevin McCarthy was trying to get Omar kicked off the Foreign Affairs Committee because she criticized Israel. It was only natural that McCarthy would jump to charges of anti-Semitism. He's getting away with it too because Democrats are spineless but we notice it. We see what's going on. We see everything. Kevin McCarthy, you're nominated for the garbage can. 
Garbage candidate number three, House Democratic leaders. As we were saying. As we were saying, the reaction to Omar's remarks provided House Democratic leaders with an early test this Congress. They failed miserably. Speaker Pelosi, Whip Steny Hoyer, and others totally threw Ilhan Omar under the bus, releasing a statement condemning her, quote, anti-Semitic comments. Congresswoman Omar's use of anti-Semitic tropes and prejudicial accusations about Israel supporters is deeply offensive, they said, except Israel supporters are actually doing genocide and paying lobbyists a whole shitload of money to help whitewash it. The idea that merely talking about this is anti-Semitic is itself a dumb right-wing trope. Omar has absolutely nothing to apologize for. Nothing. Even though she did it, she was browbeaten into it. Most gallingly, the statement said, quote, legitimate criticism of Israel's policies is protected by the values of free speech and democratic debate that the United States and Israel share. But Palestinians don't have any free speech rights under Israeli military law. And in fact, Israeli mili- media itself is routinely quieted by Israeli military censors. Also, the fucking gall, House Democratic leaders, including Hoyer, are literally working right now to punish free speech in solidarity with Palestinians through their anti-BDS bills. As if the censure of Omar wasn't bad enough, nothing about this disgusting statement is true. Everyone involved with it, House Democratic leaders, belong in the garbage can, and they are nominated this week. Garbage candidate number four. Silent Democrats, while I'm uh, reading the indictment here, Sam, you should check out the Patreon to see uh, how the results ended up here. It's pretty tight as we are heading into tonight's show. Look, I expected Democratic leadership to throw Ilhan Omar under the bus. It pissed me off, but I expected it. But honestly, I didn't quite expect certain lawmakers to be as silent as they were while it happened. (laughs) That means Bernie, Bernie Sanders, who didn't say anything. And Bernie's foreign policy advisor, Matt Duss, actually joined the pylon, tweeting about how progressives need to be extremely aware of that history and avoid those tropes as we talk together about how to fix our politics. Duss, the next day, amazingly, (laughs) scolded people for not defending Omar, (laughs) even though his boss didn't defend Omar. Even though he joined the pile on. Nice try, bud. We keep the receipts of everything around here at the Sentinel. <laughs> you know who else didn't say shit? AOC. AO coward. AO canceled. Sorry. I'm sorry. Only after everything went down did she tweet this condescending bullshit. Unlike the president, Rep. Ilhan demonstrated a capacity to acknowledge pain and apologize, use the opportunity to learn about history of anti-Semitism and grow from it while clarifying her stance. (laughs) What are you, a sixth grade teacher? Get out of (laughs) here. Ilhan isn't clarifying her stance. She did nothing wrong. She's keeping her tweet up. She didn't delete it. Stop implying she did something wrong. Stop siding with racists. So, for... Not speaking up when you should have, Bernie and AO, see you in the trash can. <laughs> That's uh, if the voters say so, of course. By the way, mo- about to move on uh, to the next garbage candidate. The race is very close. In fact, it's tied. Oh, God. It, it ended in a tie? It It's tied right now. All right. Well, we'll talk it, about it. We, we will talk about okay. it. But 
I will say this right now. If you are watching right now live on YouTube, our Patreon subscribers get to vote on this. No, they can't vote. It's over. Oh, it's over? Yeah. Oh, I, was, I was about to excite them. It ended. It ended. Oh, uh, fuck. Yeah, it closed. No, it's a tie. It's we'll a figure fucking it out. Tie. Let's, let's finish where we are here. Uh, I was going to say you could cast the tie-breaking vote, but you can't. So We will cast the tie-breaking <laughs> vote. Sorry for getting your hopes up. Anyway, uh, still subscribe, patreon.com slash district sentinel. Moving on to garbage candidate num- number five, Chuck Schumer. So, of course, Schumer couldn't keep quiet when everyone was getting in on the Omar smears. Like all other Democrats, Schumer repeated right-wing talking points word for word, accusing Omar of doing, quote, an anti-Semitic trope. This kind of intolerance has no place in Congress or anywhere in American society, Schumer said. Uh, It's obvious why he came out with a statement like this. He doth protest too much. Schumer himself does APAC's dirty work, going so far as last year at their conference, literally calling for the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians because they don't believe in Judaism. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he said, here's what he said, quote, of course we say it's our land. The Torah says it. But they don't believe in the Torah, so that's the reason there's not peace. Mm. This is the guy who's out there criticizing intolerance. This is someone who wants to take your tax money to do genocide. (laughs) Schumer is a human eel. (laughs) He's nominated for the garbage can. (laughs) Oh, man. Garbage candidate number six, Elliot Abrams. Uh, Look, I guess we... uh, we made the case for his nomination at the top of the show. This guy should be in jail, or at the very least, somewhere in the woods as far away from power as possible. Yet here he is in one of the most dangerous presidential administrations in recent history, overseeing another coup in Latin America. This guy needs to be locked away in the garbage can before he gets us all fucking killed. All right, those are your garbage can dits. We've yeah. got Elliot Abrams, Chuck Schumer, AOC... Bernie, <laughs> who are standing in for the silent Democrats tonight. We've got Democratic leadership. We've got Kevin McCarthy. We've got Chelsea Clinton. All right. What's the tie between? The tie right now is uh, 38-38 between Democrats who are silent on the oh, Ilhan Omar smear campaign and Elliot Abrams. Chelsea Clinton is very close at 37. Man, I was hoping Chelsea Clinton would win. I think this is a bit of a travesty. For for the record, this is one of our closer ones. Uh, Kevin McCarthy not far behind at 31 votes. House Democratic leadership, 24. There was, our our voters were spoiled for choice this week. It's close. It's it's a tie. It's not close. It's a tie. Look, if I had to decide, I say we throw Elliot Abrams in the garbage can or we just throw Chelsea Clinton in since a tie threw everything up in the air and we could choose anybody from there. Well, I feel like our our, uh, listeners will think that maybe it's cowardly to not throw Bernie and AOC in the garbage can, but Elliot Abrams is a fucking war criminal, dude. Yeah. I think we should throw Abrams in. I, 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 I completely agree with you. Elliot Elliot Abrams, Abrams, you you are going going in the garbage can. Oh, oh, there there go a million tweets from weepy think tank nerd fucks uh, crying about Ilhan Omar criticizing you and how it's wrong because you came to their picnic. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. Fuck you, Elliot Abrams, and all your dweeby, sycophantic friends in Washington. That's all there is. You care more about your feelings than actual fucking genocide. <laughs> if you like the show, consider subscribing over at patreon.com slash district sentinel right there. Five bucks a month. Help support 
our little news co-op here in Pistown. We're trying to hold these shit merchants accountable. While you're here, consider subscribing over uh, on the YouTube. Click, I guess it's on the upper right-hand corner. Say subscribe. Subscribe on Facebook, too. Facebook.com slash District Sentinel. Subscribe also, on YouTube when you're listening to the rock remix version of Puff Daddy's All About the Benjamins. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks to our sponsor, the Congressional Dish Podcast, hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. It's all we'll about the binge. Subscribers, we'll see you tomorrow for the uh, 420 Hangout Show. We're here in D.C. so that you don't have to be.